This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. There's a fair amount of COVID and vaccine headlines once again. Uh, Novavax's vaccine candidate showing strong efficacy against the virus, including some of those mutated variants. That was a large trial. Uh, And we have also, though, saw the UK, uh, in terms of their lockdown, they extended or expected to announce, I don't think it's happened yet, or did Boris Johnson do it, uh, a four-week extension into pandemic restrictions beyond June 21st because of that surge in that Delta variant. We are all focused on that variant. Yeah, well, let's get right into it with Dr. Iman. Abu Zaid, co-founder and CEO of Incredible Health, joins us once again from San Francisco. Dr. Abu Zaid, it's great to have you back on the show. Um, how have you been? I'm, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's get right into it, and, and because we are getting some mixed signals from around the world. On the one hand, we're getting uh, more great data about vaccines here in the United States and more and more people getting vaccinated. But you have a unique position as uh, being on the front lines, essentially, because of, of, of what you do, of being a career marketplace for connecting hospitals to nursing talent. So we always love to get an update from you about how your employees, how the nursing talent is, is feeling right now. Um, what's the latest that you're seeing? Yeah, so uh, certainly in many parts of the country, there's some relief, right? Uh, particularly where vaccination rates are very high, like uh, California is one example, uh, Washington State as well. Um, however, uh, the nursing shortage and our, our shortage of sta- healthcare workers in this country continues um, as as a demand for health for you know for their work continues to rise. Um, we are seeing an all-time high in terms of demand for, for, for uh, nursing talent. How bad is it, Dr. Abu Zaid, in terms of demand? Give us an idea on how it compares with where we were pre-pandemic. Um, it has probably, the demand has probably increased by at least 30 or 40 percent wow. for the pandemic. Um, what specifically? A few different, who, yeah, yeah, who, in, yeah, go ahead. In a few metrics. So uh, one is that we're seeing that nurse turnover, so nurses quitting, um, has gone up. It used to be 17% annually, the annual turnover. That has gone up to more like 22% now. And then the other big change we're seeing is the days to fill. So the number of times, it t- the num- amount of days it takes to hire a nurse has extended from the 82-day eight, average to closer to 90 days now on average across the country. You know, it's so, it's, it's so interesting. I'm just thinking we're talking about the Federal Reserve. We talk about the idea of things being transitory, chip shortages, shipping container shortages, and demand exceeding supply right now. We're seeing the same thing when it comes specifically to, to nursing talent. And I wonder what the solution is here, Dr. Abu Zaid. Is it all about, is it, is it about raising wages? Is it about paying, paying these nurses more? Yeah, so certainly that's already been happening. Uh, wages over the last uh, 12 months have increased uh, over 12%. Um, which is a big, wow. which is a big increase in in a twelve month mm-hmm. period, um, and then the, there's two, you know, there's two issues to resolve here. One is the improving the efficiency of hiring, and the second is increasing the underlying supply. Um, on the efficiency piece, we're look, seeing that a lot more hospitals and health systems are embracing any kind of technology and marketplace technology that that can um, that is to their advantage, right? So, what, what we're seeing, and we've just hit an exciting milestone ourselves in our mission where we're uh, partnering with over 60% of the best hospitals on the U.S. News and World Report list. Um, And that's a very rapid growth for a team that, for a company that only just started a couple, a few years ago. And that's, um, 
we've just seen a, a substantial increase in growth in the last 18 months. So you mentioned also increasing supply, and I do wonder who typically becomes nurses, and I do wonder in terms of immigration restraints, is that part of the problem? It is. So, uh, you know, the, the underlying supply shortage is, has, is a multifaceted problem. Um, first, first and foremost, we can't act, we're, we're struggling to train more nurses. So nursing schools are completely full. Um, there are, they have very long wait lists because they simply can't get in more faculty to train more nurses. Um, and so there's a bottleneck there. There's another bottleneck happening after nursing school where not enough hospitals and health systems are willing to train nurses, new graduate nurses. Um, and so there's another bottleneck there. And then, yeah, to your point, there is an, an immigration bottleneck as well. In the past, we were able to really welcome nurses from all over the world. That's become much more challenging as, um, you know, the U.S. immigration laws and, and rules have changed. And also, to be honest, I mean, in the U.S. we have a nursing shortage, but there's also a global nursing shortage going on as well. That's I mean, what I was curious, if this is U.S. specific or if this is very similar, what's happening around the globe. It's happening across across the mm-hmm. globe. I know you, you just mentioned the UK and mm-hmm. their challenges. They have the exact same exact same challenges that we have here in the US. So, as the CEO of this, as the CEO of this company, Dr. Abizade, I'm I'm wondering how you're thinking about when this gets resolved. What's your timeline? Um, there is it's it's perpetual. I mean, there is no mm-hmm. timeline for how this gets for for this getting resolved. I mean, it's a multifaceted problem problem. We're going to need some government intervention. We're going to need hospital and health system leaders to take. The initiative. We're going to need nursing schools to, to, to step up as well. And we're going to really have to make nursing as a profession as well. The other healthcare worker professions appear more attractive um, and to attract more and more uh, people into those professions. How do we do that? Is um, it just money or is it something more than that? It, it's emphasizing, yes, yeah, this is this is for the amount of education you need to become a nurse, which isn't too many. It's not too many years. Um, the, the average pay for a nurse in the U.S. right now is eighty thousand dollars. In states like California and New York, it's definitely well over hundred thousand dollars annually. So this can be a lucrative career for 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 you know maybe only three or four years of education. Um, and so we definitely need to promote the career a little bit more, and really um, make the appear the career emphasizing the mission of the career too. I mean, at the end of the day, they care deeply about patient care and taking care of people. And that is the ultimate driver for why uh, individuals enter the nursing profession and other healthcare worker professions. What are the changes that you've had to make at Incredible Health as a result of this shortage? Um, we've had to really just emphasize opera- uh, efficiency of hiring. We've had to add, you know, first of all, add lots of features that um, automate the interview scheduling, that provide data analytics, that help uh, identify any bottlenecks, and really, really have to build quite a little, lot of software to improve the efficiency of the hiring. And then on the talent side, we really have to add uh, a whole range of features and tools for nurses beyond just getting a job. Um, so we become the place where they're managing their career. Things like free continuing education for the nurses. We've had to add mental health services as well as um, a community uh, for nurses inside our inside the incredible health apps as well. Um, that's really been paying off. You know, over 50% of hospital beds in both Texas and California are in facilities that use incredible health um, to hire permanent nurses. And in some cities like uh, the L.A. area and the Dallas area, it's almost 70 percent of hospital beds are using are using our platform. Wow. You know, you mentioned um, the milestone for you folks about now um, participating in uh, over 60 percent of the top hospitals in the United States. And there's a stat you shared with uh, our producer, Paul Brennan. Hospitals send an interview request every four minutes on their platform 
flipping the script and giving healthcare workers unprecedented control over their careers, but an interview request every four minutes on the platform. So talk about, that is wild demand, Dr. Abouzaid. It, it, it really is. I mean, there's, uh, you know, so every four minutes, another interview request is being sent from a, from an employer to a, to talent on the platform. Um, and we've really had to, you know, step up our operations and make sure that, you know, both the talent and the employers are having a, a very delightful experience on the platform. And you're right, we're, we are seeing more demand than we would have ever expected. Um, and the other thing is the product works. I mean, we, we do very, you know, we do an effective job of ensuring that hiring happens uh, rapidly as well. Uh, Dr. Abizade, one last question here. Um, wondering about the patient experience, if we're having so much trouble getting nurses, how does that translate into what patients experience in a hospital? Yeah, it, it does translate very directly, honestly. When, so when a unit is understaffed, we see health care outcomes drop. Yeah. Um, so the quality of care drops. Um, and so that is something that every, um, gosh, every, every single person on the executive team in, the, in a hospital or health system is concerned with. And so um, they've, there's several different initiatives that they've put in place in order to kind of mitigate that. Um, they've added more support staff. So, so beyond nurses, you know, there's other types of staff that you can add that can do some of the kind of lower skill work um, in order to, to enable nurses to operate at the top of their license. Um, but it's definitely it's definitely a challenge that um, every executive across across the country is facing right now. Yeah, this is not a group that's you know we know they've already been stressed and certainly would like to lighten the load. Uh, certainly in today's environment, uh, Dr. Uh, Iman Abuzaid, thank you so much, Dr. Abuzaid. Great to have you back with us. She's co-founder and chief executive officer at Incredible Health, joining us once again on the phone from San Francisco. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Among our most read stories on the Bloomberg, in fact, I think it might be the number one most read People story. People want to know who's going back to work. <laughs> exactly. And you know what? The return to office among the Wall Street community, you know, everybody's not singing the same tune, Tim. They're certainly not. Some banks are moving faster than others. Fortunately, we have Sally Bakewell, finance team leader here at Bloomberg News, joining us right here with us in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Sally, it's great to have you on the show, let's start with Goldman Sachs because today's a big day for him. Yeah, it is a big day. And we have one of our reporters, Shanali Basak, down there today as the employees streamed in in the drizzling rain. Um, it's a bit of a tale of two Wall Streets, really, because we have Goldman on the one hand that's been incredibly ambitious. It wanted everyone back by today. Um, and, you know, there was a bit of fanfare surrounding it. It had food trucks. There was music. There are <laughs> coffee machines. They're trying to, you know, create this very welcoming, exciting atmosphere. They have interns coming in, too, right? And so I interns. bet it's trying to welcome them and make them feel good. Exactly. Um, but then on the other hand, you have Citigroup, which is taking a slightly more flexible approach. Um, employees don't have to be back in their uh, HQ until July. And even when they do return, they're going to be able to work on under a flexible schedule. I wonder about mm. specifically about what it means for morale and, and, and having employees back in there in some places after being apart for 14, 16 months in some cases. And at the same time, Sally, where we've heard that so many of them have been uh, working a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I think Goldman is interesting here because um, I heard today that 70% of staff are either millennial or under 30. So perhaps the family issue isn't such mm. a big issue there. And so it's maybe a bit easier for some people to come back. But of course, for a lot of other people, um, as well as the morale 
issue and you know this kind of psychological shift from being um, virtual to being in the office you also have the additional um, childcare element and perhaps you know City is now under Jane Fraser I was just going to ask you that I do wonder with Jane Fraser yeah. uh, at the top of uh, Citigroup whether there's a little bit of a different perspective there it's a very interesting question I mean this has got to be one of the biggest decisions for her mm-hmm. in her new gig um, and so how she handles it and what she's done is a real differentiator um and you know she she's a brand new ceo on a on a wall street that's generally been white dudes um for so long so uh, it, it no. is no and no. still still has many of those it, it does um but you know she's charting a slightly different course here the, the thing that i wonder and i think we've done some reporting on this is all of the, all it's going to take is for one wall street firm to get the deal because there was a face-to-face meeting that somebody else didn't do because they were embracing hybrid. And then I feel like everybody's going to say, we want you back in the office. Is that, I don't know, like what's the conversations around that? I think I recall Diamond even saying something to that effect. Mm -hmm. You know, that they have lost out on deals because of the lack of face-to-face interaction. So it's definitely... I think it's definitely going to be a factor that they'll try to mediate and try to avoid, but there is perhaps part of um, the striking of the deal where that really matters and and preference will go to those interactions. Right? Well, look, one of the reasons we talk about this a lot in what the banks are doing is because the health of the the finance industry uh, is inextricably tied to the health of of New York City and the economics of, of New York City and the economy of New York City. And in, in this story by your own Jenny Serene, she talks about how a significant portion of New York City's economy relies on the finance industry, either directly or indirectly. Take us into how important it is for these people to be back in offices when it comes to the city's health. Super important. And I think Shanali was telling me earlier that um, there were local vendors who noted the employees going into the building and were asking them, well, how long are you going to stay? Are you open for good? How long are you staying open? Because wow. it's such a huge force, um, huge commercial force and business force for them. So each one of these banks, they have this ecosystem around them, which is a very, um, and they're a very powerful force in the economy. Well, and it's interesting, too, that this comes on a day where J.P. Morgan, uh, Jamie Dimon came out and talked about warning of a bigger trading revenue drop after the pandemic boom. And you know, he's. I felt like he was touching upon, you know, the, the competition among some of the fintech startups and just whether or not competing with it. So, I, you know, I wonder <laughs> what he's trying to do, whether it's to be like, listen, folks, we got to be back at work, figuring out, strategizing, you know, what's next, because there's a lot of stuff coming at us. Absolutely. And actually, it was quite interesting what he said today about their trading revenue. They're expecting it. And Gorman echoed the sentiment. They're expecting it to be to be to drop or not to have the gangbusters feel that they had in the first quarter um but with, that was something that was expected and i think diamond was perhaps quite clever in that he said that um that he kind of reset expectations a bit in a way that means they will probably still um not do too badly mm-hmm. next to analyst predictions um so it was a kind of you know reset expectations a bit about their numbers uh, for the second quarter so how are other banks thinking about the summer right now and, and potentially getting people back by Labor Day? Um, so we had Gorman, Morgan Stanley's CEO today, saying that they he would be disappointed if people aren't back by Labor Day. Okay. Um, this was Goldman? Sorry, uh, Morgan Stanley's uh, Morgan Gorman. Morgan Stanley. Okay, yeah. Gorman, yeah. Yeah. And um, we have Bank of America said 
says that it's asking its um, employees that are vaccinated to start coming back and giving them 30 days notice. So I think there is a kind of expectation that Labor Day perhaps is where everyone's galvanizing around. Well, I, I, I think it's important for a couple of reasons. One is return to school and people who work for these companies who have kids mm -hmm. and childcare has been such, I speak as a parent, childcare has been yeah. such an issue over the last 14, 15 months. I mean, as, as schools have been closed. And I wonder about flexibility on the other side, and, and you alluded to Jane Fraser, but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if there is going to be some sort of sea change in the way that these companies think about work-life balance. And I'm not talking about balance, I'm talking about like, you know, being a parent and also being a, a, an employee. I think it will be, what it will be is a really interesting leverage element so depending on what you do in the bank maybe that gives you more leverage to be more flexible um, there are certain jobs we know the trading floor where it will be more difficult perhaps to um, be a kind of work from home or hybrid employee but I think it will it will be really interesting how the dust settles which rank, rank ranks of staff are able to kind of get the flexibility that they want and which actually find that they don't they're not afforded it and they want to move elsewhere and that kind of thing we might see in September when a lot of these policies really hit slot into place the interesting thing is is just that these banks did really well during the pandemic right even with everybody working at home they were really productive but yet we're on the other side and things are changing right and so maybe the differences between firms could give someone an advantage over another yeah possibly absolutely. Yep, I think that's an excellent point. We'll, we'll definitely see that play out. And I feel like there's a divide between what's going on in Wall Street versus the corporate community well, overall. No one knows what the right answer is. <laughs> no, no. And that is, that is so clear. Uh, exactly. Sally, good stuff. Great stuff. Thank you so much. Sally Bakewell, she's our finance team leader at Bloomberg News, joining us in our interactive broker studio. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master along with Tim Stenovic in our interactive broker studio. Top of mind for us this Monday, and especially as we wait to hear from President Biden uh, from Brussels, this weekend's gathering of the leaders of the world's richest economies. What needs to be top of mind really for them? And here to get into it is Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director Andy Brown out with his latest column. He joins us in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Andy, they talked about a lot of things, but you really kind of whittle it down to what they really need to be concerned with. Talk to us about this. So they need to be concerned about vaccines. Mm -hmm. And it looked like they were concerned about vaccines, and they are concerned about vaccines, but they've fallen short. They promised a billion additional vaccines to the developing world. And this, it was a big, deliberately big, splashy number, and it was meant to signal the superiority over the, of the free market democratic system over the autocracies of China and Russia. And the reality is they came up short. They didn't have a billion new vaccines. They actually had 600 million, and the U.S. came out of this the best, looking the best. It's it kicked in 500 million. U.K. kicks in 100 million, and the rest rest was sort of sort of conjured up through creative accounting uh, counting all of the existing pledges both of doses and of money but a billion is not enough right 
Yeah, we're a world of around eight times that. So we need more than that. Um, you point out in your piece, Andy, a statistic from The Economist who notes that uh, 70% or that I should say the magazine argues that rich nations are passing up the deal of the century. That's that's a quote from The Economist. 70% um, of the world to get vaccinated, only $50 billion. That's not much money. <laughs> right. It is not much money. So, you know, what they should have said uh, at their meeting in Cornwall is we're the world's richest countries. We are just going to underwrite this entire effort, whatever it takes, and we will lobby in however many doses it is required because it's in everybody's best interest, including us. The IMF says that and the, an accelerated vaccine uh, uh, campaign would add something like $7 trillion to the global economy, $4 trillion to rich countries, right? So that's why the economist says this is the deal of the century, and, and they look, it looks like they've turned it down. So, Andy, it's, you know, above and beyond, it's the right thing to do, right, for the developed world to help out the developing world. We've talked with, was it Joseph Stieglitz? Yeah, Joseph Stieglitz. We talked specifically about this as well, and our air, but it's just, it's also, there's an economic cost by this delay. And we continue to talk about this being, it's a global health pandemic and it doesn't know borders. And if we don't eradicate it, it doesn't matter. It's going to kind of stay within our world. Look, we don't even know what this cost, I mean, the cost could be astronomical. What would happen if it you get a It already costs so much, right? Trillions costs. of dollars. It already costs. But what would, what's going to happen if, if, if we get a variant mm -hmm. that renders the existing vaccines ineffective and then we're all back to square one again? Right. Exactly. Where does China come into this? Because there was a Bloomberg Businessweek story a few weeks ago that talked about the way that many of the countries that were not contributing to the vaccine effort around the world are missing out because China is stepping in and saying, here, use our vaccine. It is, but you know, their vaccines aren't as effective. They're just quite simply not as good as Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca. And they've got a, a 1.4 billion people that they need to vaccinate too. So the world can't count on China uh, to rescue them. Uh, it's going to be there in the end, it's going to be the rich world that's going to that that is going to have to come in mm. way, way bigger. We're talking about billions of vaccines, not one billion. Well, and this is what's interesting too. you have a quote in your story from the deputy general secretary general, excuse me, of the United Nations, who said this to the Wall Street Journal. This has become the inequality virus. It's something we have talked about so much over the past year. And if we don't even get this right in terms of getting vaccines out, I mean, those gaps just widen even further. And, and it takes a long time to kind of regain ground. This is a genuine catastrophe. Mm -hmm. I mean, it unwinds so many of the gains that the emerging world has made over the last 40, 50 years, which has resulted in hundreds of millions of people being lifted out of poverty. And now you're seeing 100 million or more people being plunged back into poverty. Is it too late? It's not too late, but it needs to happen now. And this was the other problem that came out of Cornwall, that, that these vaccine supplies were promised in the future, sometime into next year. And of course, the pandemic is ripping right now through India and could rip through Africa. Do, do we know why the priority seems to have shifted? Do we know why that the United States, which originally had talked about helping with a goal such as this, when why other developed nations aren't stepping up? 
Well, of course, they prioritize domestic populations, which, of course, every country, every country can and 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 should do. Uh, but and 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 look, you know, I I don't want to I don't want to to hit out at the United States. I mean, it, it's it's done better than any other country, right? right? Five 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 hundred five hundred million. But the fact is that they have been vaccinate. You're now vaccinating younger people in rich in rich countries when the vaccination program hasn't even begun. I mean, Haiti hasn't had one vaccine. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about emergency workers, elderly people in the emerging world that are completely defenseless, while younger people who are less susceptible to the virus are being vaccinated in rich countries. This is the kind of inequality that the United Nations has been talking about. This is what I wanted to ask you. You know, this is part of the problem going back to almost day one. Right. It was like everybody was thinking about their own country. And Andy, you know, we had talked about that there needed to be a global response to this and that we could have said, all right, the most um, vulnerable globally let's do them first we didn't do any of that and again does it just go back to we weren't together as a as a global community in terms of dealing with this i think that's exactly right and it makes you really worried about you know if the world can't pull together against this pandemic what about the even greater threat of climate change Mm -hmm. in terms of getting that done so where do we go from here i mean is there as you know tim had asked is this are we too late um, how do we ramp up? What can developed nations do at this point? The big debate now is around intellectual property protection. The World Health Organization and others have been calling for rich countries to waive IP protections for vaccines so that you can start getting production ramped up in the developing world. Joe Biden has come out behind this. Got a lot of criticism. Uh, it, it got a lot of got a lot of criticism. <laughs> to say but the all least. credit to him. It looks yeah. like Angela Merkel uh, in in Germany has blocked this. this. The G7 statement talked about ramping up manufacturing mm-hmm. in poor countries, but it didn't address this this issue of IP transfer. What's the best economic argument for the world to get together and, and vaccinate the parts of the world that don't have access? Well, it's 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 just as as, as Carol says, the pandemic doesn't end until everybody uh, has been vaccinated. Um, and it's in everybody's economic interest. And it's a moral imperative, of course, uh, to get that process started immediately. I do wonder when we get on the other side of this, whenever the heck that will be, Andy, do we walk away? I mean, what you folks do at New Economy, you have these global conversations, right? And often these problems are identified. We know where they are, what needs to be done. And yet here we are, you know, still to some extent dealing in crisis mode. So how do we fix this? What do the smart voices say? You know, it, 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 in the end, I'm afraid what happened at, at the G7 doesn't give us much, much, much uh, faith that the world is going to fix mm. this. I mean, these are the world's richest, most powerful countries. Uh, you know, and, and the interesting thing was that China hovered over this whole event. Everything they talked about was sort of, you know, China was behind it. And here they are coming out to say, you know, we, democracies, right. you know, the free market economies, we've got the answers. And, you know, what an opportunity right now. They could and should have come out and said, we're going to do this. We're going to get this done. We're going to vaccinate the world, right? That's how we're going to demonstrate this. And it's in their power to do it. Um, you know, they have the technology, they have the vaccines, they certainly have the money, and they 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 kind of felt came up short. So wait, just one more time, because I know we're. So why aren't they? Like to <laughs> me, it's a no-brainer, right? And it's like I said, you know, it's morally the right thing to do. Why aren't they? Lack of vision, lack mm. of will, lack of political purpose, all of the above. 
politics a big thing in terms of domestic politics for each of these folks back at home? That's, that's, that's certainly part of it. Yeah. Look after number one. It's terrifying. Hey, Andy, just from a logistical point of view, I'm wondering about the number of vaccines that, that companies can actually produce right now without actually transferring the intellectual property. Um, is it something that's feasible within the next, you know, X number of months, given the availability of vaccine, given what we know about uh, how quickly companies can manufacture them, and given what we know about distribution? Like, what's a realistic way to think about this if, if the United States and other G7 nations were to, contr- to commit to getting the world vaccinated? Well, there are, there, there, there are dozens of vaccines in the pipeline we just heard today yeah. about the, the mm-hmm. test results of, of another vaccine. Incredibly uh, positive. I think it was like 90% effect. The right? Novavax, right? The, no, the Novavax vaccine. Yeah. So, you know, we, we've, we've got a lot coming into the pipeline. The question is equitable distribution right. of what we have. Right. Well, and I think what kind of shocks me is I feel like all along the past year, we kind of knew where this was going, right? We had these conversations right. last year. What about the developing world? You know, you have millions, billions of people, uh, and you look at Africa, you look at India, you look at emerging Latin America. What were we going to do? We knew that this was going to be a problem. Yeah, uh, Af- Africa, Africa could be the next problem. I mean, they they seem to have sort of miraculously escaped, so and we far. don't quite know why. But it, right. Well, I, I well, the last thing I'll say is it also speaks to the importance of having a single dose shot. Because if you think about mm-hmm. it from the perspective of, and look, again, I only know what, what I know and what I experienced here in the U.S., but I was helping relatives figure out how to use the websites to schedule their vaccines. Um, we were you know, taking time off of work to go to the second dose. Um, and it speaks to the importance of having a, a single shot to yeah. be able to do this in an effective way. If you don't have so much of the world actually having that technology. Right. Well, it's a very thoughtful column, and you know, here we are. Uh, we kind of knew we were going to get there, but it's upsetting to see, especially after the G7 meeting, where you thought this was the perfect environment for them to all come together. Andy, thank you, thank as you. always. Andy, Andy Brown, he's our editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy in our interactive broker studio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Joining us now is Joel Weber, editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. Also, Lucas Shaw, entertainment reporter at Bloomberg News. Uh, Lucas, you have a fantastic, fantastic feature available in the current issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. You can get it on newsstands now and at Bloomberg.com slash Businessweek. It's called The King of Cards. Tell us, Lucas, who is Ken Golden? Golden. Ken Golden is a lifelong sports collectibles enthusiast, hobbyist, uh, who started collecting cards and and other collectibles when he was a 12-year-old kid in in South New Jersey. He now runs what is the largest independent auction house for sports collectibles and trading cards, uh, and a house that uh, so far this year has broken a new record for sales just about every month. He's been doing this for some time, correct? Yeah, he started Golden Auctions in 2012. He saw coming out of the the global recession in 07 and 08 that there was an interest in investing in alternative assets and that trading cards would be one of those places that that all these people with excess cash would put their money. But the business has really taken off over the last 12 to 18 months. So much so that they had a recent auction, right, and it crashed the site? Is that right? Yeah, there has been... He works with this company called Mm SimpleAuctions.com, and because Golden Golden is such kind of a shameless self-promoter and has attracted so much attention. There are hackers that frequently have attacked the, the site during his auctions. 
Let's bring in Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber, who joins us now on the Access Line from Brooklyn. Joel, why do you think that 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 this type of asset right now? I mean, look, Lucas said it's it's been having a moment over the last twelve years, but why over the last year, over the last sixteen months, has it really been having a moment? I I think people are craving. Um, assets that are are slightly alternative right and i think like even things like meme stocks sort of have shown that um so as we did in that cover story um uh just a couple months ago about sneakers being yet another place if, right. you, if you can flip something and make a buck uh have fun doing it uh it i think all of that stuff suddenly starts to to resonate in newfound ways when you know many people have <laughs> too much time on their hands um, you know, the question I have for you, Lucas, is um, how much are all these baseball cards from my childhood worth, though? <laughs> you know, it depends on what kind of condition they're in. Are, if, are they, have you had them graded? Are they a PSA 8 or above? No, I, I have not had them graded, um, I, and I think there's um, it's a lot of, like, maybe Don Mattingly 1987 Tops cards. <laughs> Uh, I will say it's distressed me uh, how much now I think I could probably look at a card and, and analyze all the tiny little flaws in it because I had Ken sit down with me one day to talk me through these. Like We had 10 Michael Jordan rookie cards graded 1 to 10, and I have to say it was very easy to spot the defects at the lower end. Seeing the difference between what the PSA 8 and a PSA 10 seems pretty arbitrary to me. Okay, so a grade 10... Uh, is in the example in your piece from Michael Jordan, uh, Michael, uh, the Michael Jordan example, a grade 10 is $480,000 versus a grade eight that would be just 11600 to, to $12,000, not to mention uh, if you go all the way down to uh, a grade one, which is poor condition, uh, 2500 to $3,000, Lucas. Yeah, there's a huge range in prices uh, you know, all of which is determined by these third-party grading companies. PSA is sort of the, the number one, but there's also Beckett. There's others. They have been so overwhelmed by demand this year because of people probably like Joel trying to get their cards graded <laughs> that they stopped grading new cards for a, a period. PSA has sworn to me that they're hoping by July to be back up and running as fully. Hey, listen, I want to understand how this story came to be. So, Joel, what was the pitch or how did the leak, how did it come, especially a story like this with a character like this? As with so many things, it starts with <laughs> Lucas and I talking about something else. And then he, and then he, would, he emailed me uh, a little bit later and he goes, by the way, what are you doing about trading cards? And I was like, nothing. Tell me more. Tell me everything. And he was like, well, there's this character that, that we should profile. And, and, and thus began um, his reporting. Um, uh, so, so Lucas, I'm I'm curious. Like, you know, the there's the cards that I grew up with, and then which are, let's just be honest, worth nothing. And then there are the cards that um, are are truly collectibles, and they they I think they you might even they might even push the envelope of like what a card means, right? So, talk to us about where the market has has gone on that front. Yeah, one of the things that happened. Uh a long time ago, there used to be people would manufacture tons of different cards, and now all the card manufacturers have gotten a lot smarter about it. And so there are going to be just kind of generic rookie cards, which can be really valuable, but they also make kind of one-off cards or limited sets of 10. Like there's this Luka Doncic card that, that sold earlier this year for more than $4 million, and it's because it's one of one, and he's this guy who everybody thinks is going to be you know, the next LeBron, the next Michael Jordan. So there's been a lot of, a lot of efforts to restrict 
supply and create special editions to kind of create scarcity because that's like any market it booms based on scarcity there's also the added wrinkle sort of where do nfts fit into this because they're kind of like trading cards but they're not like trading cards and even ken golden has started to sell them in his auctions none of them have generated as much money as the the top of the top of the line trading cards but they still go for tens of thousands of dollars so that's what I was just going to ask you about, Lucas, or, or NFTs, and if that's sort of the way in for the next generation, or if the next generation is going to continue with the classics. I, I think the, a lot of the people buying these cards now are the next generation. They're younger people buying Pokemon cards. They're also buying basketball cards. The real shift in the collectibles market here has been from people who want to buy the Don Mattingly cards, the, the old baseball, old school baseball cards, to people who want the, ver- the, the contemporary athlete, especially in like basketball, football, soccer. They, a lot of people have compared it to a form of gambling or a form of fantasy sports where you are, you know, you see somebody play well and their value will jump in the market or you see somebody have an off game and maybe you go in to buy it because you think that they're primed to actually play really well for the rest of the season. What about my pogs? <laughs> I, I think you're, 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 uh, you're out of luck with that. Okay. One. I don't know if pogs right. are ever I'm coming I'm probably back. revealing too much about I'm my child. I'm feeling so lost right now. <laughs> Lucas, you had, um, a number of really good voices in the story. I'm curious, what was your, what was your favorite interview that you got to do and what, and what was the insight that, um, you got from it? Um, that's a good question. Uh, there were a lot of good ones. I mean, I love talking to Bill Simmons, who's a lifelong collector and who has who has looked at space for a long time. I like talking to Kevin Durant's business partner because mm. um, Kevin Durant has gotten really into collecting. We didn't even end up getting to, to quote him in the story, but he, Kevin Durant has gotten really into collecting his own cards, and there was an auction that I was monitoring uh, in, in, in March that Ken did, and he had been on the phone with Kevin Durant's business partner earlier in the day, strategizing how to get this one rookie card. And then over the course of the night, Kevin Durant's business partner, who's based in New York, uh, fell asleep. And the, Ken didn't have the clearance to go above a certain price threshold to bid on it. So Kevin Durant ended up getting outbid for his own rookie card, um, which was, was just funny to hear. Uh, Steve Cohen, there's an aspect to this story, right? Steve Cohen, uh, along with this collector, Nat Turner, uh, who was probably the most helpful collector that I spoke with, no. uh, bought this bought Collector's Universe, which is the parent company of that grading firm, PSA. Nat Turner, by the way, this guy who, you know, he sold his healthcare company uh, along with his co-founder for like $1.9 billion to Roche a few years ago. And has since, he is, he, he is sitting on so many different cards of so much value that he doesn't know how many cards he has or what they're worth. He just knows that all told, he's probably got like 30,000, 40,000 cards that are worth at least a few hundred dollars a piece. So how much is Golden really making off all of this? His firm takes a 20% cut from every sale. So for, so far this year, I think they're at like uh, 150 or $200 million in sales, which means that his company is taking 30 to $40 million, which, by the way, is more than they made in total sales, like the net sales from just a couple of years ago. You know, he... He sold his a majority stake in his company earlier this year for about $40 million, mostly to a company called the Churning Group, but there were a ton of celebrity investors. And I, I spoke with Ken not long after that deal closed, which at the time it seemed like a lot of money because he'd never made anything close to it. And he already felt like he probably sold too soon and didn't get enough, given, given the amount of money that's now coming in for him. 
Hey, Lucas, um, when I when I think about the work that you've you've done over the last year, I think a lot about, well, a lot, of course, media reporting, but a lot about the way that you've written about the way that um, musicians have sold uh, their catalogs uh, to private equity investors and how some investors are treating those as an asset class. Is there any connection here to what we're seeing with with trading cards? And I know you do mention this in the piece, but what is the connection between the way that, that investors are thinking about this type of asset? Um. It's a little, I do, I think it's related in that there is just too much money out there mm-hmm. among rich yeah. people to yeah. deploy. The, the difference is, is music makes a lot of sense to an average investor because it performs kind of like a bond. It's, it's just an annuity, right? You're like buying an asset that's going to generate a very reliable amount of money every year, and you're betting that that's going to keep going up because of streaming. Trading cards does feel a little bit more like art where it's kind of arbitrary. People choose to just set the market. Um, but, I, you know, you could also, uh, like I said earlier with the gambling, you could argue that this is sort of like playing the stock market where you're betting different players as an individual stock. You're basically, by buying a card of John Morant, you're basically buying a, a stock, a piece, of, a piece of stock in his long-term value. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Oh, it's a great, I'm sorry, Joel, did you have a last one? Oh, I just was going to, the, the, one of the other things that this um, story and, and the accompanying video that was also an incredible um, revealed to me is that there's thing, a thing called a break, which is like truly like kind of a public service announcement, I guess. <laughs> so, so Lucas, can you quickly describe what a break is and, and how I can get in mm-hmm. on it? So when you, you can buy a box of cards, right? And each one of these boxes has several packs within it. And one thing that has become very popular on YouTube and Instagram, which is how a lot of young people have gotten into it, yeah. is they make a display of opening these boxes and going through it because there's, a, there's an element of surprise, right? Where you open yeah. that pack and you're going through it. It's like one, two, ooh, and then on the seventh card happens to be the thing that's going to be really valuable. So Ken breaks every week on Instagram with his son. Bill Simmons, the sports writer, nice. breaks often with his son on Instagram yeah. and Ken Golden flew to, to LA in part earlier this year because he did a like a Pokemon break with Logan Paul the YouTube celebrity so this is a huge thing in youth culture right now I've seen that online um, great stuff uh, and a great read uh, Lucas thank you so much entertainment reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in Los Angeles Jill Weber editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the remote access from Brooklyn and they're actually uh, I guess uh, Churn and Entertainment pitching an unscripted TV show set in the world of trading cards and will be produced by a former ESPN an executive and a Pawn Stars producer, which is, I was thinking this has a Pawn Stars oh, element yeah. to it, right? Big time. Yeah, look, after reading this piece by Lucas in Bloomberg Business Week, I'm thinking, okay, this is something I want to know more about. And also, yeah. my pogs. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.